Hello there, Max Wright from Success Council, and I'm very excited today. I've been trying to put this uh, interview together for a long time now because uh, the people to my left and right are very important in my life. Uh, Mr. Ed Griffin here to my left, he introduced me to the world of monetary science and the potential evils thereof well over a decade ago with his book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, pretty much a life-changing book for anyone who reads it, I think. And to my right, we have Trace Mayer, who um, introduced me to Bitcoin in uh, 2012, also a monetary scientist. and. Uh, uh, yeah, obviously very, very um, important to, to me and uh, my understanding of how things are going in the world. So I thought um, it'd be great to get them both on camera. Um, we've got a lot, of ex a lot of things going on in the world as we witness the demise of fiat currencies uh, around the world. And we've, the question becomes, how do we best protect ourselves against that? So, um, and I might start off with you if that's okay. We just had the State of the Union. Um, we've had uh, Obama talk about uh, the new Myra um, retirement funds that he's going to encourage people to move into and uh, there's some dangers around that in my belief anyway with regards to I think we're going to see in the future um, increasingly desperate governments go after people's funds be it in their bank accounts or in their retirement funds or just inflating uh, their debt away. Um, could you have any comments on that with regards to potential things we need to be cautious of? I'll hold it. Well, oh you hold it? Okay. Yeah. Well I uh... I don't know quite how to approach a topic like that. First of all, I have to uh, say that uh, mercifully I did not see the State of the Union address because I, it usually those kinds of things get me very angry and, and so forth. And there's very little real information that comes out. We, I think perhaps your audience understands that um, uh, in the real world of politics today, what you see is not what you get. You know, and so I I just don't want to play that game. I don't spend a lot of time watching the displays and the speeches because I prefer to look at the voting records and um, the background activities of these people and predict what's going to happen on that basis rather than on their speeches and their promises and their uh, look at what they do, know what they say. Yes, right. They all have good speech writers, and uh, that unfortunately passes for political wisdom in most people's minds, but not mine. So uh, having uh, warned everybody that I am a little bit cynical about this, um, I didn't listen to uh, Mr. Obama's speech, and had I listened to it, I wouldn't have believed a word of it. So, but the question still is a good one. Uh, what is the government, whatever that means in this case, uh, what is the administration the present administration planning to do uh, in order to um, bail itself out. It needs more and more money. It's uh, it's it's moving down this uh, drain so rapidly that it can't create money fast enough, it seems like, through the Federal Reserve anymore to pay the bills and cover the losses. So they're looking around, as I think everybody knows, they're looking at the retirement plans of the American people and they're in the name of, of protecting the people. They're going to phrase it in such a way. They're going to get those speechwriters really working and they're going to tell the American people that for your own best interest, to, uh, to make sure that you don't suffer from uh, the ups and downs from a chaotic uh, stock market and so that you have long-term purchasing power. We're going to steal your money and put it where we think it will do the best for you. Basically, that's what's coming under whatever title they wish to give it. And I suspect that's pretty much what uh, Mr. Obama was talking about. Um, 
does it need to happen? It doesn't need to happen, but as long as, as Americans continue to believe the speechwriters and say, well, it sounds pretty good, maybe we should give it a try, as long as we have that high level of naivety uh, among the American people, I'm afraid it's going to happen. So that's my comment, and if you want to go elsewhere with it, I'd be happy to go. But in general, that's my uh, reaction to that. Yeah. I like, um, he, he said something, uh, I hope I get the quote right, but uh, he offered, the, through the, uh, the Myra uh, strategy that he offered, he, um, he used the phrase that it was risk-free return. Um, and so uh, I think that's really interesting because I think if uh, anybody in the not political world said something like that, the FTC would be all over them. Yeah, they'd go to prison, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah. exactly. No, but yeah. one set of rules for us, one set of rules for them. Yeah. So they uh, get to say uh, uh, advertise U.S. Treasuries as risk-free, which I find very interesting. Trace, do you have kind of a comment on that and where you think it's going to go? I think it's a return-free risk. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a more accurate phrase, I think. Uh, but I think Ed like really hits at a much more kind of central point here like what is government and government is this fiction that we all kind of agree in our imagination and one of the functions of this fiction is to define property rights and with Bitcoin uh, we're defining property rights in a new way we're defining property rights not based on politics or the laws of men but polit but uh, rules of mathematics for example uh, HSBC recently, uh, where they were denying people withdrawing cash out of their own bank accounts. Supposedly, under the laws of the government, people have ownership of that cash. But HSBC holds the private keys to that cash. And so we're seeing that there's this collision between the person who holds the private keys of wealth and the owner of the wealth. And so who really owns it if you don't control it? Whereas uh, with Armory that I invested in, we literally allow people to hold the private keys to their own wealth. Uh, in Bitcoin's case, it's a trustless uh, way of holding those uh, private keys. You don't have to trust anyone. And that's really Satoshi's big vision. So anywhere we have uh, third parties that you have to trust your private keys to, whether it's your Bitcoin keys with an exchange, whether it's this my IRA or RA thing or whatever whatever they want to do they want to hold the private keys to the wealth that's the bottom line and you know whether it's a piece of real estate where the title ultimately is you know you might have ownership of the piece of real estate but you don't hold the private keys because you don't you know the military can come in and take the piece of real estate same with stocks or bonds or any of these assets any of these property rights that we have ascribed and and said that people own things according to these rules that we've formed as government. Whereas I think that we're going to uh, be moving in a direction of the keys of wealth being decentralized and held individually instead of the keys of wealth being held primarily by these centralized institutions we know as governments. And I think that's a very exciting prospect because it begins to change everything about it. And also part of the reason for that is, for example, with Armory, with a $200 laptop, you can secure tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of value secured from the NSA. There's no way that they can get those keys. Yeah. The laws of mathematics are a shield that Leviathan can't cross. And if they can find the private keys, Leviathan's going to find them and eat them. 
because we've got we've got these huge institutions that are bankrupt in debt that are spending way beyond their means and as long as they can find it and take it they're going to take the the wealth that's held uh, with private keys that they can get access to but if they can't access the private keys they aren't going to be able to take it and that's an interesting concept you you refer to that phrase uh, private keys and that kind of makes sense in the bitcoin world it might be a new concept to other people so i just want to take a moment to explain it um for those of you who don't know uh, i think it was in london hsbc um somebody went in there i believe their balance was like four hundred thousand pounds or something and they went in there and tried to withdraw five thousand pounds cash and the bank uh, politely refused which i mean to me should send shockwaves through the entire banking industry worldwide it's like alarm bells hey guys you can't access your cash it's like well you're not doing your function as a bank so i'll just take all my money thank you that's what i would say um so what you're talking about is bitcoin allows you to have ownership and what it allows you to do specifically is eliminate third-party risk be it government be it a bank a financial institution you're talking about eliminating third-party risk and i wonder if ed you might have uh, some some comments on this how will um Specifically, how will the collapse, or oh, let's collapse might be a strong word, but how will the demise of fiat currency kind of play out? How will third-party risk be relevant to that and sort of bring us up to where like gold and silver is significant in not having third-party risk? Well, I got stuck on the phrase demise of fiat currency. Um, I think that there's an assumption there that... Um, Fiat currencies demise, or they will, um, they will evaporate, or they'll fall apart. They're going to demise, uh, and they always have, but they never have done so as long as the regime behind them existed to enforce them. Uh, so, in order for the currency to ha undergo demise, the regime has to fall. Also, as long as the regime stands, they can use the uh, coercive force of the military, of the police, um, to uh, require citizens to accept the fiat currency, no matter how worthless it is. And, and so there's the assumption there that the system will fall apart too. I see that the present system uh, that we live under is um, not in immediate danger of collapsing at the moment because of its fantastic military presence and the uh, the uh, sophisticated weaponry that exists in the hands of these people. So they can just, by decree, uh, require people to continue to accept a worthless currency. And I see that what will happen as, as the U.S. dollar becomes more and more worthless, that their plan probably is to morph into a, a regional or an international fiat currency, which will, doesn't really solve the problem. It just kicks the can down the road a little bit more, and the can grows <laughs> as you do it. Um, but I can see this going on uh, well beyond my lifetime and possibly even yours. Uh, I think they can perpetuate that for a long time. But now, having said that, uh, you look down the line to the point where um, everything falls apart. And uh, and I don't know how to to, uh, to conceptualize this because there are two there are two options, aren't there? Uh, when things go so far that there are no real resources left to supply this machine, uh, because productivity has fallen to such a point that uh, there's barely enough to uh, to feed the the ruling class and uh, barely enough to uh, feed the workers who are now 
in bondage and have to work in places of employment that are not their choosing and types of work which are not their choosing and everything is sort of a, a slave state. Um, and once it gets to that point, um, does it go any further? I don't know. Uh, in, in history, um, it's never been a global environment like we have today. So there was always some uh, opposing regime or some other uh, nation or some region of the world that was able to come in and conquer or 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 um, save, uh, um, you know, a conquered people. Uh, now we're dealing with something a little bit different, and I don't know whether the international picture will be so solidified in a generation or two that there's no place else to go unless it's outer space. So I'm a little bit uh, in doubt as to how to visualize how this will go, uh, but it's I'm afraid that it could go into a state of perpetual totalitarianism in which money no longer really is an issue. I mean, if you have uh, a totalitarian system, uh, money, it's uh, been replaced by the command economy and the people have digits and rank. I mean, it, when you're in the military and, uh, and especially if you're in a, in a uh, engagement with the enemy, money is not important. You have rank and you have rations and you have a place to sleep and you do what you're told and as long as you are um, uh, obedient, you do fairly well in terms of uh, the necessities of life. And if you get out of line, you are imprisoned or you're executed. And that's the kind of an environment I think that the world is moving into. It's sort of a militarization of, of the entire uh, economy, in which case money no longer plays a role at all and doesn't need to. So that's on the negative side. On the positive side, I could see that finally when it gets so bad that the enlightened people rise up and say, well, we're, we're through with this. You know, we're not going to deal with this anymore. I'm not sure that's going to happen. But anyway, that was the more optimistic view. And uh, they're going to start all over again and build from the ground up with a more enlightened uh, vision of how a uh, political system should work and how an economic system should work. So th I think we're coming to that crossroads at some point in the not too distant future. When I say not too distant, I mean it's, it's not a thousand years. <laughs> and, I, and I doubt if it's even uh, 500 years. It could be a hundred years, but I think it's even sooner than that we're coming to that crossroads. And to tell you the truth, uh, I do not know which way it's going to go. I'm doing everything I can to see that the people of the world are enlightened enough that they will be able to choose the right path. Yeah, um, and I, first of all, it's a good good point for me to thank you for your decades of service to the uh, freedom movement. Um, so thank you very much for doing all that you uh, can for so long. Uh, we very much appreciate it. Um, I, I, you know, I think, uh, so, you know, I think my, my time frame, I think, is much less than that. In my opinion, I think it's going to come to a head sooner than 100 years, at least. I think certainly in my lifetime. And uh, I, and the reason I base that on is the, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's thanks to technology. With technology, we're in an almost vertical climb of, um, of possibility. And we see that once good ideas uh, hit the market, uh, they can spread with, with blinding speed. Um, and so that's kind of my take on that. Do you have thoughts on this, Trace? Yeah, I think I think the technology is just fascinating. Um, you know, we we look at some of the the geniuses throughout history: Copernicus, Galileo. You know, IQs of 170, 180. Uh, they were also monetary scientists. Newton. 
you know, up there around uh, 200 IQ. The man who knew everything, Johann Goethe, the, you know, the, the mind of God, you could say, he had a 215 IQ, the highest ever. And he had a very interesting theory about elective affinities, where uh, how society functioned, it was almost like uh, people and personalities were kind of like chemicals, uh, and you had different reactions and things that would come out of this. And we have these cypherpunks that are some of our most intelligent, uh, highest IQs of people alive now. You know, the ones who developed things like asymmetric cryptography, Bitcoin, uh, other things of these natures, these cyber weapons. And when we look at the industrial age, we, we, we use tools to multiply the power of our muscles. But as we're moving into the information age, we are using tools to multiply the power of our minds. Imagine if Johann Goethe, you know, with his 215 IQ, I mean, he wrote 37 volumes on every possible subject available, botany, optics, uh, math, philosophy, everything. Um, he had a working IQ. Uh, he had a working vocabulary of 60 to 90,000 words, three times Shakespeare's. And Shakespeare added how many words to our language? Uh, imagine if he had the ability to, to use machines, hundreds of thousands, millions of machines to carry out his vision and his mind and his work. So the power of the individual being multiplied through the technology that we have, uh, I think it's very exciting. And then the ability for, for those minds to uh, tinker with, you could say, the source code of humanity, of society adding particular elements, subtracting particular elements that they find to be unuseful or harmful or damaging uh, to the expression of the individual. I think that it's very exciting to see what we have and, and this potential that's unfolding. Because I, I mean, when we're looking at like what the state does, and I think it's an idea that's largely worn itself out. Well, I certainly agree with that. Um, it's interesting. We, we we talk about the you know the rise of technology and the potential possibilities, but of course it goes on both sides of the coin. Um, new technology allows things like you know drones and NSA surveillance state and things like that. It also allows things on the cryptography side for um, freedom of communication, or sorry, inexpensive uh, communication, democratization of communication, protection through cryptography and privacy, and so we see that. The kind of technology can go in both directions, can be used in positive or negative ways, which I find very interesting. Uh, but, but, but how does somebody with a, you know, your average Harvard student probably has an IQ between 130 and 150. How do they compete against somebody with 180 or 200 IQ? Even in bands and groups, they can't compete because the person with the 200 IQ can now multiply the power of his mind using hundreds of thousands of computers and these distributed networks with, uh, I, I don't know how they compete. Well, that, that, <laughs> that may be true, but are they competing uh, as the person with a 200 IQ for good or for evil? Well, that's up to the individual. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Like, is it a system that that is going to be controlling, as Ed is talking about, or is it going to be individuals that are still making the choices? I mean, it's the reason that we're not subservient to to great white sharks anymore, grizzly bears. We have superior mental capacity. Yeah. So let's just bring it back to um, 
let's bring it back to currency because I want to touch quickly on gold and silver and then I want to get moved to uh, Bitcoin and see where that kind of fits into our conversation. So Ed, maybe just if just the quick highlights um, as best you can in a few minutes. Can you talk about um, what are some of the challenges of fiat, why gold and silver is significant um, and, and how it performs as, as, as good money? Well, there have been many treatises written on money and good money, bad money, and so forth. And I don't think there's much uh, question about the qualities uh, that are necessary for good money. They, uh, people know them. Um, one of those qualities is that the supply has to be limited. It cannot be the supply of money cannot be expanded purely by uh, intellectual or political will. You know, it has to be based on some kind of a algorithm or um, production that limits the supply. I mean, it, you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to have a 200 IQ to understand this. <laughs> uh, I think even a, a grade school kid can understand that if, you, if you're playing a game of Monopoly and you go in the closet and you find another box of Monopoly in there and you go and rob all those little, little pieces of money, funny money, and you distribute them to everybody or give them to all to one person, that all of a sudden the price of boardwalk goes up. And, uh, but Boardwalk doesn't change in its relative value to uh, Marvin's Gardens. It's just that the price went up because you got more money circulating around the board. People can understand that. So one of the, one of the, quantity, uh, the elements of a sound money is that it must be limited. And uh, of course, gold and silver has that, uh, that quality in spades because gold and silver has to be produced by human labor like everything else. All the goods and services that gold and silver are used to acquire also is produced by human labor. So now it's an even playing field. You've got human effort on both sides of the equation and it tends to stay in balance. But once you remove that break that it doesn't take human effort to produce uh, and the quantity therefore can expand uh, according to some other formula, uh, usually political or uh, political will or uh, greed or something like that, well then uh, we know what happens. The quantity of money expands, the value of the, uh, of the individual unit goes down, we have this thing called inflation and eventually we have the destruction of the monetary system. So gold and silver serves a, a very a wonderful um, a break in that regard and, and while I'm on that topic uh, I, I would like to comment on sort of um, a side issue that often I hear, especially of late, people say, well, you know, why would you want to back a money by gold or silver? But don't you know that the bankers have all the gold and the silver and therefore you're just playing into their hands and so forth? And uh, of course, I have to laugh at that because the bankers don't have all the gold or the silver at all, not even close to it. They do have a lot. They're smart people. Why do they have a lot? Why do they? Why do bankers like gold or silver? Not for the money system. We'll come back to that. But for themselves. Why? It's because they're smart. They understand it's a storehouse of value, and so they acquire and hoard as much of it as they possibly can. But we, they don't realize that most of the gold or silver has never even been dug out of the earth. It's still in the ocean. It's it's there and and practically unlimited quantities. It's just a question of how expensive is it to extract it and purify it. And as the demand goes up, um, the cost of extraction will be worth it. So the, the supply will always be in demand. There is not, essentially there's not a limited supply, almost an unlimited supply of gold and silver. Just depends on the demand creating enough motivation to mine it and refine it and so forth. But beyond that, there's the other issue is that, uh, you see, the banks, 
do like to have gold and silver for themselves, but they will fight to the death to have gold and silver as a backing for a monetary system. People don't make that distinction. Why do banks not want gold and silver as a backing for money? The answer is obvious. Banks make their money, their profit, from loans. They collect interest on loans. Money is their inventory. The more money they can loan, the more profit they will make. And so they don't like any limitation on their inventory that they can loan. If the inventory of money were limited by the amount of gold or silver that people had deposited into those bank vaults, the banks would be sitting around saying, well, gosh, we need, we need more inventory. And they wouldn't be able to loan only what they have. That's all, no more than that. And so banks have always called for what they like to describe as a flexible monetary system. And they will go to great lengths to explain that a flexible money system, which means the ability to create money uh, easily, is good for America, it's good for people of the world, it's good for the economy, it's, it's good for prosperity. But in truth, their real motive is that they like to be able to create money so they can loan more of it and make a profit. And perhaps I took too long to explain that, but I want people to think about the fact that these, these big bankers that we're so concerned about, they love gold, but they just don't want the money to be limited by gold because that cuts into their business model very, very seriously. Yeah. And I've, just on that, I find it, um, Interesting. I think that's part of our you going to a government-run school. You get a government education, and you tend to believe something which I now believe is false. Which is, um, if you if you if you have you know all this money, um, and but you, you you acquire it via let's say nefarious means, fractional reserve banking or something like that, and all of a sudden there's a level playing field. The speed with which the free market will actually give that back to poor. The, the belief is that the you know, money makes money. Without government, the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. And that is actually, I, th I think, very, very false. That, ac yeah, actually, um, the rich will get richer and the poor will get richer too. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> well, yes, in uh, in paper terms, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it's not even a concern. I believe uh, that there was a quote once upon a time. I can't remember who it was, but it was uh, if you take away the the banker's privilege of printing money, then the fortunes they will amass will disappear very, very quickly. Even if you don't take them out, even if you don't take it off of them. So, so there's that. So, okay, bring this back now. Let's enter into um, Bitcoin. And uh, this is kind of really interesting for me because Ed, for my money, is uh, one of the most knowledgeable people I know on the history of banking, money, and et cetera. And uh, you're a little bit blindsided here. You certainly don't bill yourself as a Bitcoin expert. I know that. Uh, but um, in terms of introducing Bitcoin as a concept to the world, uh, I, I find, for me, your opinion is like the litmus test. And uh, the questions that you may raise is uh, will be some of the best that could be raised. So I might throw it over to Trace to kind of introduce uh, Bitcoin. Um, now you, you, I mean, you aren't completely blindsided. You know what Bitcoin is. In fact, uh, I think almost a year ago now, um, you had access to the Success Council members area where you first uh, got um, sort of deep into Bitcoin a little bit and, um, and could have formed some opinions there. We went back and forth via email a few times, had your questions answered. Actually, before we start, how do you feel about Bitcoin now as a solution? Um, to, well, not as a solution, that's too strong a word, but as a valuable thing to uh, help the world, basically, in terms of a monetary or currency in and of itself. Well, I have to say I'm very impressed by Bitcoin. I, I like Bitcoin. I, I encourage people to look at it and to make their decision based on its uh, strong points. And 
I, I can see why the fiat currency people hate it <laughs> because it's a competitive currency. It has so many good qualities to it. Um, it um, I like Bitcoin. Okay. That's it. Um, I, the only thing is that I want to, I have certain um, what I consider to be uh, questions of caution, not even questions of uh, validity, but just caution um, because there are certain unknown things. It's, it's a new new concept, hasn't been around yet, and it's just beginning, I think now just beginning to be tested um, by its opposition. And out of this contest will come the ultimate answers. Um, I like everything about Bitcoin, absolutely everything about it, except one area where I have a question, and that's it. And, and that's the, um, one of the qualities that I consider to be essential for a, um, the best money system. Can we just hold there for a second? Can we get that question in a moment? Yeah. Is that cool? Yeah. Let's, let's go over to Trace. And, um, and for our viewers and for everybody, why don't, we, um, why don't you just start with a quick uh, heads up on what Bitcoin is, uh, sort of three or five minute um, synopsis of what Bitcoin is. So Bitcoin's a decentralized distributed uh, computer network. It's the first practical implementation of triple entry bookkeeping in the world. What I mean by that is Imagine you have a sheet of paper, someone else on the other side of the world has a sheet of paper. Thousands, tens of thousands of people can all have that same sheet of paper. Anybody can update that sheet of paper, assuming they have a private key, uh, and it instantly changes on everybody's sheets of paper. And so everybody's got the same general ledger, the same record of all the transactions. And that's the that's solved what's called the Byzantine Generals problem in computer networking. It was uh, taught in every introductory to computer networking course as being impossible to solve. And here it is. Somebody solved it. <laughs> Somebody solved it. You know, some, one of these monetary scientists on par with uh, Newton. You know, Newton solved, uh, came up with the original gold standard. You know, so brilliant mind seeing how all the economics and implications and and everything and that led to the to a golden age for the entire world Newton's uh, work in monetary science and so likewise Satoshi came up with uh, this solution to the Byzantine generals problem which was you know a very vexing problem in computer science but everybody had just thrown their hands up in despair it couldn't be solved and give, give, us, give, give us the thumbnail what's the problem uh, so basically you've got different generals and they all want to attack a city and they need to coordinate with each other to attack the city but they don't know whether they can trust the communications that go on between each other and so they have to be able to trust the because the spy might be intercepted they might get a fake message uh, they have to be able to know that the, that they're both going to attack at the same time and know that the communication between each other to attack at that time is trusted and secure yeah and they also have the issue of um possibly another general um, working against them. Like if you want to be ruler of the kingdom afterwards, you'd like the other general's army to get more slaughtered than your one. So you have a, you could have a malicious general within the network uh, trying to hurt you. So that's the, that's the Byzantine general's problem. Yeah, and, 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 you know, the, and so bringing over into Bitcoin land, you know, we could have malicious nodes that are contributing processing power to the Bitcoin network, but it's still not going to interfere with everybody's usage of that general ledger, that triple entry bookkeeping system, debit, credit, the network validating through a confirmation that the transaction happened. And so this is a tremendous advancement 
that brings together so many different branches of knowledge from mathematics, cryptography, thermodynamics, the, the innovations that are going on in mining, for example, computer science, uh, semiconductors. I mean, all this stuff, optics, you know, it's, it's really fascinating because we've now solved this problem and made programmable money. And as a result, we're going to be able to use that programmable money in so many different ways and so many different applications. The, the easiest, the, the simplest to actually understand is to use it as a currency. But that's only just one use of it. So, yeah, and let's, let's, let's just touch on that for a second. So, I don't, I mean, I think we all understand the value of like the internet and technology and networks and, you know, what, what do networks do for communication in terms of email or the spread of information? Obviously, it's incredibly powerful. And you can, if you can inject that level of technology and free and instant communication worldwide, there's tremendous value of that. The obvious problem is, I know that was the, the first question you asked me, was, um, well, well, okay, so, but it's digital. My experience with digital is things can be copied. So this is the, this is, and this ties back to the Byzantine general problem. Let's say Trace wants to pay me some Bitcoin with this magic internet money called Bitcoin, right? Yeah, I love that name. <laughs> yeah. Because, because actually when you're dealing with uh, lesser developed uh, minds, there's no way for them to distinguish advanced science from magic. Right, yeah, okay. It, it's a philosophical problem. <laughs> so let's say Trace wants to pay myself Bitcoin, uh, and then the next day he also wants to pay Ed Bitcoin. Well, how does the network know that he didn't double spend it? He didn't set, sp spend the same coin with myself and with Ed. And this kind of triple entry bookkeeping is what we're talking about. The Byzantine General's problem that's been solved is what if Trace was malicious and wanted to counterfeit the currency and pay both myself and Ed with the same unit. And by the algorithm of Bitcoin actually solves that problem. So that's why it's so significant. It's a tremendous um, intellectual leap. And in terms of a disruptive technology, uh, I think it will be unparalleled. It's just, it's incredible. In the field of currency, which, you know, 50% of every transaction, every economic act, um, if this can solve this problem, which it looks like it has done, I mean, it's it's, it's just tremendous well, and, and life-changing. Well, it's not that it looks like it has done. I mean, it's solved it. And because, I mean, you have your balance at your bank. Like, they can just get out an eraser and, like, change it, like, change the balance. Plus or minus, you know, the, same with PayPal. With Bitcoin, there's a mathematical proof that can be done on the balance. Right. And so you know whether it can be changed or not because it has to comport to the mathematical proof. Right. You're not trusting a person. You're trusting math. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like, that's a big deal. Yeah. So the, the possibilities for Bitcoin are absolutely endless and amazing. Um, one of the ones that I really, really like, which I just want to share with people, is um, its ability to help uh, poor people. And so something that I actually didn't know about this, but in the United States, for example, 10% of the population is unbanked, meaning they do not have a bank account. And it could be because I don't even know the reasons that criminal records or bad credit history or they're homeless, they don't have an address or a license or whatever it is, and you don't have a bank account. So when they go and do a job or whatever and receive a check, they have to go to like payday loan sharks and give away 30% of their check to get the cash from that check because they don't have a bank account. Now, that's a, that, that affects 10% of the population here in America. But in the third world, that number's up to like 70 or 80% of people who are cut off from worldwide economic transactions because the banking system prohibits them from being involved in it in one way or another for various different reasons. And Bitcoin has the ability to allow everybody to participate in this worldwide economic community um, 
and it's uh, I think it's just tremendously valuable to poor people. So I might throw it back to Ed, and I'd love to hear this um, this challenge that you have. Uh, with, because and I know yeah so just why don't you start with that yeah it's a, it's not really a challenge and I, I have to be very careful about this uh, because I'm I'm not really uh, critiquing uh, this uh, concept I'm very impressed by everything I've learned and as you said a moment ago I have a lot yet to learn but I uh, begin to grasp what Trace is talking about in terms of the uh, uh, the I guess you would call the algorithms the computer programming that uh, has gone into this which provides all kinds of checks and, and limits and, uh, and protections and so forth. It, it boggles my mind to imagine how they do it, but I'm perfectly willing to accept the fact that it is done. Okay, that part is done. And uh, so everything about it looks good to me. It, it, but there's one area that keeps haunting me, and that is that one of the qualities that I have uh, learned to think was important uh, in money is that it should have some value in itself uh, that is useful for something other than money. It's one of the things that has always been present in uh, in historical money that has survived and that, that it, it started off because it had some value and um, take gold or silver for example. Um, it's useful in making jewelry and today it's useful in industry. So if, you, if you're sitting on a stockpile of uh, of silver or gold, um, even if nobody wants it for money, you can just you know discharge it in payment of debts or swap it out or use it in barter or something like that because it has um, that dreaded phrase intrinsic value, <laughs> which I don't want to go there. But it does have value for something other than money. Well, that that is missing, of course, in uh, bitcoins, at least as far as I see it. Now, how serious that is, I think, remains to be seen. Um, I think it remains to be seen uh, how uh, powerful an attack can be mounted on against Bitcoin by its enemies. And by its enemies, I'm talking about governments of the world that are reliant on fiat money. They're not going to sit by and watch their monopoly over fiat money be challenged without doing everything they can to destroy the source of the challenge. They have quite uh, remarkable resources at their disposal, one of which is to close down the internet. Or, or to perhaps, and this is I need advice on this, perhaps they can um, uh, interject certain programs or uh, um, circuits or whatever you want to call them which would prohibit um, any internet communications dealing with Bitcoin. As we see this now happening in a similar way in China and other places of the world where certain words are just stopped on the internet. You cannot uh, use, uh, you cannot, if you go on to Google and and look for a word such as freedom, for example, in China, you may not get any hits at all except in a scientific sense, you know. Yeah. There are ways, and I think there are going to be even more ways developed to block or limit, handicap the way in which the internet uh, functions. And I'm just concerned that maybe the enemies of Bitcoin may be able to figure out a way to just to stymie it at the internet level, in which case, what do we have? We have these pieces of paper with um, numbers on them, which may not 
this is my question now, may not be any more useful than a, a drawer full of uh, Civil War greenbacks or uh, Confederate money or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that is my question. That's my concern. And I'm an anxious to hear from Trace how you feel about that uh, possibility. So I'll just recap that. So there were two questions in there, actually. The first was, um, is Bitcoin valuable in any means other than as currency? And in Austrian economics, this is known as regression theorem. So if you want to take a moment to um, check that out uh, and find out what regression theorem is, uh, that might be a good place to start in this question. Now, I have an answer for this, but I'm also keen to hear what uh, Trace is going to say. So let's start off with that one uh, with regards to Bitcoin having value outside of currency. Um. Well, actually, on rundogold.com, I wrote a whole article, one on this regression theorem and the other on whether Bitcoin's uh, tangible, addressing this intrinsic value question. Uh, and James Turk, actually, uh, I changed a lot of his thinking on uh, what intrinsic value even means. Uh, so to address kind of the, the regression theorem, uh, I would point to an article that Vitalik Buterin, uh, one of our 19-year-old savants in this uh, cypherpunk movement, uh, wrote for Bitcoin Magazine about why useless money is good money. And a part of it is uh, we're able to uh, dissect out the different uh, areas that, that people subjectively value different assets for. Uh, in Bitcoin's case, there are a lot of uses for Bitcoin, uh, intrinsic value properties to it, you could say. Uh, you can transfer any amount of money anywhere in the world anytime, can't be seized if you're properly securing it, you're doing it instantly, there are no chargebacks. I mean, that's a very useful uh, commodity. Now, whether Bitcoin's five cents a coin or $100,000 a coin, it performs that utility equally well. But I think to get to another point is that uh, there are a lot of altcoins that are being developed and they have different properties and utilities, etc. And what we're seeing now is that you know, whereas in the industrial age, we in agricultural age, we we came up with commodities and things, and then we turned them into money. Uh, in the information age, we're actually creating these units that have really no other use other than as money, and then figuring out other things to do with them. Uh, for example, the master coins project that builds on top of Bitcoin, colors the satoshis. Those can then represent ownership to other things. Uh, open transactions, Ethereum. Uh, project. So I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in this whole space and it's one of the reasons I think that Bitcoin is and, and cryptocurrency really, Bitcoin's just kind of the coke, uh, the category creator, uh, why it's going to be such a potent uh, competitor. You know we had commodity money like gold and silver, we've had fiat currency like dollars, uh, euros. Why, why have dollars and euros been such formidable competitors to gold and silver? It's because gold and silver are atoms. Uh, they exist at a particular point in space and time. They're subject to centralization, which makes them pretty prone to uh, the centralizing of the private keys with institutions uh, in order to protect them. Uh, governments, you know, formed. Uh, and an ounce of gold today is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. The dollars and euros in software terms, they are extensible. You can keep building on them. You can make them into something else. You can add new features and functionality. We're still in beta with Bitcoin, but it's version uh, 0.8.6 of the software. So we've built out more things that are cool, that, that allow all types of things, uh, like smart contracts, multi-signature for dis 
distributing the private keys, uh, for corporate governance and cash control and uh, and things of that nature. So uh, I think that the that going from commodity money to fiat currency to now this math-based money, uh, it, the the math-based money is both limited in amount and extensible. So it takes really the two best qualities and leaves aside the baggage. So I'm curious about this. Uh, that's actually the first time I've heard that response to the regression theorem uh, question. I haven't had the pleasure of reading that article. If I understood you correctly, are you suggesting that regression theorem is false? Well, the regression theorem is, is one, just a theorem to try and explain how gold became money and it became money because we regress back for why humans have subjectively valued it. Uh, in Bitcoin's case, you know, one of the first transactions they did was to was to trade some bitcoins for some for some dollars. Uh, so that was, you know, that's where it climbed out of this primordial ooze. But at the end of the day, it's subjective value theory in Austrian economics. Like humans value things for whatever reason. Personally, one of the reasons I value my bitcoins is because I like to wear them in a necklace, like other people. <laughs> so, no, no, just to, to just to show the absurdity of why humans value things. Like we can't get to like why they value things. Only that the that the valuation that they place on things uh, arrives into the pricing mechanism. And Bitcoin can be used for so many different things besides just valuing it as currency. It could be uh, as a registry system. It could be used uh, as a way to prove speech or as a notary service. I mean, and all of this would change the valuation of it uh, that individuals are placing. And so, you know, it's subjective value theory. Price is what it is. Well, I have a very different answer. Yes. Well, I'd just like to comment that uh, I agree with everything that uh, Trace has said, except that the... Um, the underlying value or the regressive value of the uh, of the currency is something that is um, somewhat insulated from the whims of, of um, human evaluation in terms of, of uh, preferences. In other words, the gold would be used um, in a gold circuit, in a circuit board, and it, its value is pretty much based on supply and demand and so forth, and it, it doesn't require um, Mrs. Smith to say, I think that's beautiful. You know, <laughs> it's just that's what it is, and uh, so I, I see that as a uh, an advantage, as an anchor to the value of money, which keeps it from drifting high into space. Like uh, we all know the story of tulipomania, where the value of the tulips was totally subjective in terms of human uh, anticipation of what its uh, value was or what it's going to be. And yet its underlying intrinsic value, there's that word, was it just basic, it's a tulip bulb, you know? And it finally fell back to that in the end of that uh, uh, experience. So I see the, um, the regressive value of, of uh, tangible money as being an asset rather than something to be uh, to evolve away from. Mm -hmm. And so well, I'll pass on my answer now, and I have to credit it where it's due. It's actually um, I I read this in an article by Eric Voorhees, uh, one of the other original gangsters of Bitcoin, and um, I hope I do this uh, uh, his argument justice. But um, he suggest, suggested, that, well, this is true, that Bitcoin is actually two things. And he thought it would be best had they been named differently, but they weren't. And so we're stuck with it. But Bitcoin is both a unit of uh, currency inside a payment network. And it is also a payment network. 
So you have um, this ability to transfer wealth across distances like a Visa, MasterCard or Western Union, and that network has value. And then you have a unit of account within that network, and it goes by the same name. They're both called Bitcoin. Now, if we look at it in those terms, the ability, as Trace mentioned, the ability to send um, you know, unlimited funds anywhere in the world instantaneously, all of the nodes in that network can agree and confirm that that money was sent and the unit of accounting is perfectly legitimate and trustless in that it's, you just have to rely on math to believe that it happened, then we find that that network is very, very valuable um, in terms of money remittance and many other things. Now, the units of account within that, by definition, are the only things that you can possibly have that will allow you to participate in this incredible net payment network system. So therefore, uh, it's the, the value of Bitcoin is derived by its ability to participate in the network. And so I view Bitcoin as the Bitcoins are valuable because they allow you to participate in an incredible payment network that um, is frictionless and solves a lot of problems. Who wants to go? Well, to go yeah, well, then we come back to my second point, and that is as long as the network functions. Correct. So that's, so the that's, really, a, yeah. that's so really a, the fallback point. So it's a perfect time to move on to that. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about um, the possible attacks that governments and others may have against Bitcoin and um, what kind of protections there are in there, um, including shutting down the internet? Well, good luck trying to do that, especially with all of the... Uh, economic activity now going through the internet and the reliance on the internet by the elites. I mean, they like the internet too. Um, especially, you know, all the medical advances and the things that help them stay alive because of the internet. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, that's definitely a threat, you know, the, this war on general purpose computing, you know, and who knows, it could get even worse. Cody Wilson drew up these plans, print a gun. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that sent them all into a, a frenzy. Uh, so, will the technology? Will we continue to have general-purpose computing? Will we continue to have free and open uh, software? You know, Apple just banned the last remaining Bitcoin wallet from the uh, Apple Store. No, no give, no reason giving given other than an unresolved issue that they haven't actually articulated the issue. Uh, but that you know, that's uh, if people want to. For now, we have a fairly free and open uh, use of of software and the ability to do our own computing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, we could definitely see leverage points exerted on society in that way too. So, but, I, but Bitcoin is censorship resistant. It does run at kind of the subway of the internet. We could be very creative in how we we could be very creative in how we. Uh, move the traffic around or disguise it or uh, things of that nature. Like even when Egypt shut down the internet, you know, you could still get Bitcoin transactions out and you can have, like in Greece, there's a mesh network of something like 80,000, 90,000 computers. So maybe we'll see the internet uh, begin to fragment as the state uh, begins to interfere more and more with it. Uh, you know, but as long as you've got that mesh network going on and there's just one connection out via like an Iridium phone, uh, you can still broadcast transactions and then propagate among your your network. So uh, all of that is censorship resistant, uh, which you know there there aren't any hearings about eGold. You know they they yeah. stuck an ankle bracelet tagged to zero like a whale, um, but we have hearings about Bitcoin. Why don't we have hearings about BitTorrent? You know I mean they they did the same thing to Napster. It's because they can't. 
necessarily just stamp it all out real easily. Yeah, and so, so some things to uh, think about in that in that realm of uh, security. I think number one is that the whole uh, protocol and, and broadcast messages are all encrypted. So to my knowledge, please correct me if I'm wrong, Trace, but it would be impossible to shut down from centralized servers. It would be impossible to shut down um, Bitcoin uh, transactions or and, and messaging without shutting down the whole internet or without shutting down all. Um, so that's all encrypted data. So including your, your, you know, when you log into your bank, that's encrypted. When you pay with Visa and Mastercard online, that's encrypted. So without shutting all of that down, you couldn't just remove the piece of of Bitcoin from the internet. Is that true? Uh, well, and you have the different clients that are running different things. Like one of the clients filters on a particular port. Uh, so I suppose you know at one of the choke points, you could try to uh, censor that particular port, like any traffic going going there. But you know, then we could just change that. And you've also got like the anonymous coin Qt browser. I mean, Qt client that's now built I2P and Tor like directly into it um, natively. And so, you know, we we can do all types of fun things in that in that regard to make it even more difficult. And and we're able to do things in a force multiplying way. So we can do things that that hardly take any effort from us but cause just tons and tons of work on their side yeah and so that's fun because it causes <laughs> them to use more and more and more and more resources yeah and we hardly have to use any and, and i actually like that because i think uh, there's a gandhi quote which is um the purpose of uh, a civil disobedient um protester is to highlight the violence used against you and so or against the, or to highlight the evil for the rest of the world to see and i think if they were to shut down the internet uh, more than anything else, uh, that would put the uh, the masses in hysterics. They'd be out in the street with pitchforks, yeah, yeah. and so. Well, yeah, I agree with that. I'm, but uh, my purpose was to just examine the possible weak points, right. and that is one of them. Also, I think we're uh, we're overlooking the possibility that the uh, internet could go down for other reasons. Um, I've recently become aware of something that I don't know how it escaped my attention until now, but it did, and that is the fact that we're. Uh, we don't really have enough historical data on the effect of um, maximum or X-class solar flares. And we, I, we find out that we go through 11-year cycles, we go through 100-year cycles, and the last one that happened was just a little over 100 years ago, the last major one. And that was severe enough then to uh, bring down the, um, uh, the telegraph communication system. Actually, the, the, I'm told that the, some of the wires went up, burned up, the small transformers they had burned up. Uh, we, it's a new area of concern, and I'm taking a hard look at it right now. It's entirely possible, in my view, that we may be coming into some um, much heavier uh, solar storms coming from the sun than we have thought uh, the Earth experienced before. And the difference is that now is the first time in Earth history that we have a very delicate uh, communication system depending on satellites and uh, and the grid, power grids and so forth, all of which act sort of like antenna to this sort of an effect. And there are some very serious um, scientists who are saying we've got to do something to protect our uh, infrastructure, our communications infrastructure, and our power infrastructure from these coming, they say not if, but when, these much larger flares, which could bring the, the whole uh, internet and the power down, not just for weeks or days, but for years. 
And I thought, wow, is that really possible? And I find out that it is because we're talking about, well, two things. One are the transistors that are in all these um, satellites and all of the, in the circuits, the control circuits, the protection circuits. They could easily be fried by uh, uh, such an event. Uh, also, we have this thing we don't like to talk about, but the EMPs, uh, which would be a, an act of war, which could knock out the satellites and knock out power systems and so forth. So I don't want to go into all of that, but the point is that there are other scenarios which could possibly bring the internet down for a long, long period of time. Okay, so we might wrap it up there. So uh, Ed, do you have any final thoughts? Well, yes, I've got a couple of final thoughts. First of all, I want to emphasize that I am a big fan of Bitcoin. And because I have some questions and some cautions doesn't mean that I'm trying to convince anybody to stay away from Bitcoin. I think it's, it's a very much worth our attention. My only caution is that uh, we should be aware of the potential pitfalls because the technology is evolving. We don't really know yet what lies ahead. And so uh, I just don't think we should put all of our eggs in one basket. Even if all we have is a couple of eggs, you know, we'll put one here and one over there. I'm still a fan of gold and silver also. So I wanted to make that point. And the other thing is I think we need to be careful when we use the word impossible that certain things are impossible, that they cannot break this, they cannot do that. Because I remember, I think it was about 15 years ago, talking with a gentleman whose name is well known to everybody, is in the monetary field. And I'll leave his name out because I don't want to embarrass him. But uh, he said to me, he said, Ed, he said, we've won this battle. And I said, what do you mean we've won? And he said, well, look, we've got the internet now. And there's no way that they can control the internet. They can't limit it. They can't stop us. There's no way governments can have any control over it. And I. I didn't realize at the time how uh, wrong he was. I was wondering if he was right. Well, now we know uh, how wrong he was. And, uh, he was, I believe, he was, was he in jail, or he was at the very <laughs> least silenced and off the internet. Uh, well, I'm afraid to identify him, but yeah, he's not in jail, but uh, he's in court. Let's put it that way. Okay. So anyway. Uh, it's easy, I think, to get carried away and think that the technology as we understand it today is, uh, is so strong that it, you know, it cannot be broken. Uh, I don't think there's a day that goes by but where we don't find some story in the news of a new computer, a, a new NSA facility where they're going to put in this supercomputer and they'll be able to break any code, I don't care how many digits there are in it and so forth. And I think it is a question uh, of just time before that sort of thing does become reality. So that's my only point I want to make is, is to be cautious and uh, not get too carried away. And I like Bitcoin and I encourage everybody to uh, take a good look at it. Cool. Trice? Yeah, I, I'd just like to highlight that. Uh, I was editing a book for uh, called Bitcoin for Kids and it's all about these uh, children entrepreneurs and, and their experience in Bitcoin land. And you know, it used to be impossible for them to start their virtual lemonade stand. How do you get a credit card processing account and a merchant account and a PayPal account if you're a minor, right? Uh, with Bitcoin, they can see the future and make it real. Uh, they can build whatever they want. And I think that's a very powerful, important thing. Like as we move into this information age, as we transition in it, into it, as we creatively destroy all of these legacy systems, we get to build the future that we want. And that's a, that's a powerful thing. We don't just have to be like passive... Uh, people that let things happen to us, we can we can do it. Yeah, I think um, we're heading into very very exciting times. I think uh, there's a 
I think it was Confucius proverb. It said, may you live in interesting times. And we are certainly doing that. It's uh, very, very exciting. Things are moving very, very fast. And um, it's just exciting to be part of it and watch it. So I hope you guys uh, get involved and uh, take a look at Bitcoin. I think you're going to find that it has a, a world of possibilities. Um, now, how to get in contact with our guests here today. Uh, Ed, best place to get in contact with you or should I say uh, follow what you're doing and your work. Um, a couple of avenues. There's realityzone.com where uh, people can get a tremendous uh, amount of information on on all sorts of topics uh, from, I guess, the libertarian perspective. And Freedom Force, uh, the Freedom Force organization, which is freedomforceinternational.org. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there, uh, on the right-hand side of that page, down low, very well hidden, which I've been begging him to change for many years, um, there is an opportunity for you to sign up for Ed's um, Unfiltered News. And uh, every week, um, he, he releases a sort of a catch-up of the news around the world, and it's a, it's a brilliant um, publication. I read it every single week. Yeah, well, Max, I have to uh, say, in response to your uh, encouragement, we have improved that somewhat. In fact, we now have a new website. We finally purchased it. It wasn't cheap, but it's unfilterednews.com. Oh, so if anybody just goes right to that name, they'll see a, a way to sign up for it. Okay. It's free, yeah. and I put a lot of work in on it, and I, I think people will like it. Excellent. You made it really easy for people to sign up, I hope. Yeah. Excellent. Very, very good. And Trace, you've got a couple of sites as well? Uh, yeah, runtogold.com. Big gold uh, fan. I started it before Bitcoin even existed, at least to the public. And HowToVanish.com, where we help people uh, protect their personal privacy, uh, immunize themselves against things like identity theft, this target breach, and then the FreeBitcoinGuide.com, if you want to learn how to get started in Bitcoin uh, safely, securely, learn from my experience, some of your experience. Uh, <laughs> Those are, those are some good resources. Perfect. And for myself, um, successcouncil.com. Um, please subscribe to this video channel. We have a lot of cool stuff, all with regards to uh, freedom issues, Bitcoin issues, gold, silver, monetary science, protecting yourself. Um, that's all available on this channel. So much of it is free. We also have some paid products, um, and you can find those in the links below. We have a Bitcoin starter kit, which is a very simple step-by-step -step process for an absolute beginner, how to get involved, how to get your first wallet, how to get your hands on your first Bitcoin, things like that. And we also have Bitcoin Mastery which is uh, the product I sent Ed um, back in 2013, which started Ed on his journey for a Bitcoin. So check both of those out and um, we'll see you very, very, very soon. Take care.